After 20 years of moving steadily through the black of space, narrowly avoiding collisions with high-speed dust motes, and enduring freezing temperatures and intense radiation, the probe neared its target. A yellow dwarf star on the fringes of this galaxy, orbited by a series of rocky planets and gas giants. But moving at the incredible speed of over 135 million miles an hour, the probe, equipped with a microscopically small, rugged camera, would have mere seconds to snap pictures before it flew past, back out into space, transmitting that data to its home planet. This is the sort of thing we imagine a Muamua might have been up to. Traveling through the galaxy, gathering data, looking at interesting stars, photographing unusual planets, seeing if there actually is other life out there. Now, it's one thing to try and identify alien life from afar, and another thing entirely to actually go and visit it. That's a difficult plan to execute with a very long timeline. And it's one good argument for why a Muamua wouldn't be an alien light sail. Then again, if you think about the amazing scientific work we're doing right here on Earth, it might not be that far-fetched after all. Some of the technology we're developing to look beyond this planet seems pretty out of this world. Giant telescopes that will make out potentially habitable planets within 20 light years of Earth and look for atmospheres that support life. If we find a planet that has temperate conditions, so the, the temperatures are such that you could support liquid weather, uh, and it has an atmosphere, it has oxygen, and it has water, then things are very exciting. Highly sensitive instruments that seek out radio signals in the 100 closest galaxies to ours, and that can monitor 10 times more sky than anything we have currently. So we use um, large telescopes all over the world to look for electromagnetic emission light that is uh, indicative, as far as we know, of a technological source. Miniature probes weighing just one gram, navigating through space with the aid of a giant laser-propelled sail. We'll focus the laser on the sail and um, accelerate the sail in about 10 minutes to 20% the speed of light. This stuff sounds as much like science fiction as some of the National Enquirer stories out there. But it's the next stage, the most promising stage yet, of the search for extraterrestrial life. Because beyond the stories we hear of UFO abductions, cattle mutilations, and lights in the sky, this is what the search for ET looks like in the most advanced scientific institutions on Earth. I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Space Invaders, a series about the search for extraterrestrial life, where we're looking, what we're looking for, and why we hope we're not alone. SETI, the scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence, not just life, but intelligent life, is an idea that's extremely popular right now, with all kinds of TV shows and websites and magazine articles devoted to it. But that's a more recent development. In the 60 years since scientists started thinking about SETI, the field has gone through its share of struggles. Government grants, cooperation with NASA, that all went up in smoke in the mid-1990s. NASA used to do the search for for SETI, but then then a senator was disturbed by it in, in like the early 90s. So he picked on uh, SETI, and then NASA could never invest in it. 
Pete Klupar, a former NASA engineer, is talking about Senator Richard Bryan from Nevada, an enemy of waste, fraud, and abuse, who stuck an amendment in the 1994 federal budget that completely ended NASA's work on SETI. Every single nickel you spend has to be justified to the shareholders. Um, and the shareholders are the U.S. taxpayers. So you have, you know, their representatives, 538 of them in D.C. And if those guys think you're uh, misappropriating funds, then, you know, you can't spend money on it. This was a huge blow to NASA and to the various SETI organizations that got money from federal grants. NASA could keep looking for habitable planets, and with that, the search for microbial life. But no funding, no work, no personnel could go toward the search for intelligent life. As Senator Bryan put it, The great Martian chase may finally come to an end. As of today, millions have been spent and we have yet to bag a single little green fellow. Not a single Martian has said, take me to your leader, and not a single flying saucer has applied for FAA approval. Taxpayer dollars, he believed, should be spent elsewhere. The decision left SETI wandering in the wilderness. For 20 years, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence struggled to stay afloat. But in 2015, a Russian billionaire by the name of Yuri Milner brought the full power of private investment into the search. He created the Breakthrough Foundation, a nonprofit that encourages young people in the sciences, and also picks up where NASA had been forced to lay off by funding a series of programs known as the Breakthrough Initiatives. These programs are reinventing the search for extraterrestrial intelligence for our century and pushing the foundational ideas of the Drake Equation well into the future, all while freeing SETI scientists from the whims of Congress. The Breakthrough Foundation is led by Yuri Milner, and so there's really only one person that, um, that you have to convince. And if you convince him, then that's all. And he doesn't have the same responsibility to the taxpayers. Pete Klupar is now the chief engineer of one of those breakthrough initiatives, known as Breakthrough Starshot. We'll be coming back to that shortly, but I want to start with the first breakthrough initiative, which is called Breakthrough Listen. Now, in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, we don't uh, intentionally transmit any signals. Uh, we're simply listening. Uh, and of course, the, the project Breakthrough Listen is, is called Breakthrough Listen, uh, in, in some sense, because we are simply listening rather than uh, attempting to, to transmit. That's Andrew Simeon. I'm the director of the Berkeley SETI Research Center, the principal investigator for the Breakthrough Listen initiative, which is the most comprehensive and sensitive SETI search uh, in history. What they're looking for are signs of technology coming from other planets. We talked a little bit about this back in Episode 3 when we heard from Jill Tarter and Seth Shostak about radio astronomy. Because we don't know anything about alien civilizations or their technology... Our best guess for what that would look like comes from our own experience. Um, if we were to place the Earth at a distance of 100 light years away from us and ask ourselves, how could we infer that there was life on that planet? The only way that we could do that today with the telescopes that we have available to us today is by detecting our artificial radio emission. Nothing else is a strong enough signal for us to detect it. Radio signals are an especially good long-distance tracer of technology. Why? Because radio signals have an easier time making their way through space. Radio emission is really, really good at getting through the dust 
between all of the stars in our galaxy. So whereas it's very difficult to see to the center of, of the galaxy in, in optical light, we can very readily see to the center of our galaxy in radio light um, because those longer wavelength photons have no trouble getting through the dust. There are other detectable things too. The pollution we emit, the way we've carved up the earth for cities and agriculture. But those are much harder to find. But our radio emission that comes from our technology is very easy to detect. So for that reason, um, radio astronomy has always played a, a pretty prominent role in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Which is why Breakthrough Listen was the first project out of the gate. A 10-year, $100 million program that built on decades of experience. When the Breakthrough Listen program started, there were really only, only two telescopes anywhere in the world that were used regularly for SETI in any respect. And those are the Allen Telescope Array here in California and the Arecibo Telescope in, in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and today with Breakthrough Listen, we use um, large telescopes all over the world to look for electromagnetic emission uh, light that is indicative, as far as we know, of a technological source. Breakthrough Listen takes the data from these telescopes and processes it in a certain way to look for the kinds of signals they're interested in, like radio, which is light. So technically, Breakthrough Listen isn't actually listening. It's looking for patterns in radio emissions. The ones that come from stars look kind of chaotic. But radio emissions from artificial sources, technology, look more orderly. And if you come across something like that, you might just have some intelligent extraterrestrials on your hands. Technology has a high degree of what we call coherence, or order. Uh, and we use that as kind of a sieve to find the things that are only due to technology. Now, when we conduct one of these experiments uh, today, for example, in the radio part of the spectrum, um, we see all kinds of things in our data that we know to arise from technology. Of course, so far, all of those signals arise from terrestrial technology. We call that uh, radio frequency interference. Um, but we develop uh, algorithms that allow us to weed out all of the stuff that comes from our own technology and hopefully allow us to be sensitive to the very distant technology. And, no surprise, the more telescopes Breakthrough Listen can get access to, the better the chances of finding something. And I think my hope is, is that by the end of the Breakthrough Listen program, the notional 10-year duration of the program, that every major observatory, be it a radio telescope or an optical telescope or otherwise, has the search for extraterrestrial intelligence as a part of its science program. For now, though, he's happy to have access to as many telescopes as he does, especially since the searches they're doing are between 100 and 1,000 times more powerful than they were 10 years ago. So whatever the odds were that we would make a detection 10 years ago, our odds today are 100 or 1,000 times better. And, and similarly, whatever fraction of the parameter space that we were exploring um, 10 years ago, we're exploring 100 or 1,000 times more of it today. And I think that alone gives me optimism about, about the, the science that we're doing. Wild Thing fans, I have a serious message for you. If you're not already talking to your kids about aliens, it's probably time to start. Just this year alone, the James Webb Space Telescope found distant planets that might harbor life. Archaeologists claimed to have found mummified aliens. And extraterrestrials even got a shout-out during congressional hearings. No doubt your kids are asking lots of questions, and it could be you're not sure how to answer them. Let me recommend my new book, Is There Anybody Out There? 
which arrives on Earth on October 3rd. This middle-grade book, based on season two of Wild Thing, explores the question of whether we're alone in the universe using science, humor, and fun illustrations. And it'll leave everyone better prepared for the possibility of alien life. Help kids learn how to tell the difference between science fact and science fiction. Look for Is There Anybody Out There in all bookstores and online. Or for more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. While Breakthrough Listen currently leads the search, other breakthrough projects are quickly catching up. In 2009, NASA launched the Kepler Space Telescope, whose mission was to discover Earth-sized planets orbiting around other stars. We'd hypothesized for decades about these planets. In fact, it's one of the factors in the Drake equation. But the Kepler mission proved their existence. In just under a decade, the telescope found over 2,600 planets. That discovery forever changed astronomy and created a whole new field of research, exoplanets. Uh, an exoplanet is a planet uh, like Earth or Jupiter, uh, that is orbiting a star that is not the sun. So uh, if you look at the uh, sky at night uh, and you uh, see a lot of stars, basically most of these stars have their own planets and they are called exoplanets. That's Olivier Guillon. He's an astronomer who builds instruments that find and take images of exoplanets. He was in Hawaii when we spoke and the phone line was a bit rough. Sorry about that. Because of Kepler's findings, astronomers like Guillon are working under the assumption that most stars have planets, setting up the possibility that there are billions of habitable planets in the universe. Some of them just might support life. But while Kepler simply identified exoplanets, the job of figuring out if they're actually home to intelligent life is being carried out by another breakthrough initiative, Breakthrough Watch. And Olivier Guillon is the project's principal investigator. So Breakthrough Watch is looking for uh, planets or orbiting nearby stars, and it's uh, specifically looking uh, at these planets that may be habitable within uh, maybe 10, 20 light years. Why limit it to just 20 light years? There are two reasons. Uh, the first one is that if an exoplanet is close to us, we have better tools, better chances of, of, uh, of studying it in detail. If uh, indeed we are uh, able in a few decades to uh, send probes to nearby habitable planets, we're going to have to pick the nearest ones because the travel time still, even at, at, um, at, at a significant fraction of the speed of light, the travel time will still be decades. So we can't go very far. We want to pick the nearest target to start with. The closest target is a star system that's about four light years away, Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B are two sun-like stars that orbit each other. And then there's a third star, Proxima Centauri, which gets its name because it's just a tiny bit closer to us. It's a small red dwarf star, meaning it has a small diameter and a lower temperature, which is what makes it look red. Proxima Centauri, which is part of the system, is uh, personally my favorite because uh, although it's a, it's a very faint reddish star, uh, near a star to us, but not even visible to the naked eye, uh, it, it does have a, a rocky planet, a planet that could potentially be habitable. Now, if we can barely see Proxima Centauri, how the hell do we know that it has a planet orbiting it? In fact, how do we know anything about any of these exoplanets? There are a few uh, methods that Breakthrough Watch is, uh, is pushing forward. 
Uh, one of them is uh, direct imaging. So basically use large telescopes to take images of uh, nearby stars uh, in the hope of seeing a small dot next to the star. Uh, and another one that we're currently working on uh, is called astrometry. And uh, it's a technique where we look at the wobble uh, that the planet is inducing on the star uh, as it orbits the star. A star's gravity keeps its nearby planets in orbit. But the planets also pull back on their star, which can cause it to wobble as they go around it. And we're able to see that wobble because the telescope technology has gotten really good. Now, a confession. I don't really know much about how telescopes work. So we're going to take a quick detour to the University of Colorado Boulder's Summers Bausch Observatory. Um, So now we're in the 24-inch dome. And so we're in our, this is um, the original dome that was built in 1953 for the observatory. Seth Hornstein is the director of the observatory, which is used as a teaching tool for students and budding astronomers. The observatory has three reflecting telescopes. Which, as the name sounds, use mirrors to reflect the light around and focus it. Most modern telescopes these days um, are reflecting telescopes. And so when we talk about the size of a telescope, we're really talking about the size of the mirror at the back end of the telescope that's collecting all the light. So the light comes in the top end, travels down the length of the telescope, and, since this is a 24-inch telescope, bounces off a 24-inch mirror. The primary mirror, we call that. We call it the primary mirror because it's the primary surface that the light hits. And it's a, it's a powered mirror. Which means it's not a flat mirror, like your bathroom mirror. It's actually a curved mirror. Then it starts to focus the light. It starts to bring the light together. It travels back up the length of the telescope, almost to the very end, where we have what's called our secondary mirror. And so that's a much smaller mirror because you've now started to focus the light together. And the light travels back down the length of the telescope. Got that? The light comes in the front end, goes all the way down to the primary mirror at the back end, gets bounced back up to the secondary mirror, and gets reflected back down again. So the light has traveled the length of the telescope three times, and it comes all the way out the back end. And on our back end, our primary mirror actually has a a couple inch uh, hole that's drilled in it in the very center, because you've got to get the light out some way or another. The light comes out the back end, and so the hum that you can hear is actually the fan that's on the backside of our, of our camera. Using the telescope as he just described can give scientists an image of what a star looks like. Really large images can show if a planet is moving in front of that star. But if we want more information, like what a planet is made of, scientists can use the telescopes to do something called spectroscopy. And so when we do spectroscopy, what we're doing is we're taking the light from space, we're separating it out to all of its colors, and we're looking for chemical signatures that tell us, oh, there was hydrogen gas in that object, or there was oxygen in that object. Astronomers use a prism, or a special mirror, that scatters the light coming from the object they're observing. So we, st- we don't see our object anymore. We actually see the light that came from that object spread out to all the colors that made it up. And the reason we do that is because, well, when we look at a rainbow, we see all the colors of light. But it turns out when light passes through any gas, that gas absorbs some of the colors of light, but not all of them. And so if you can look at that rainbow really um, accurately and really at a detailed level, you might notice there's a little bit of um, yellow light that's missing. And that yellow light might correspond to sodium gas. And so if light passes through sodium gas, the sodium gas absorbs a very specific wavelength of yellow light. And so if you looked at that rainbow, you'd actually notice that one little bit of yellow light was missing. Granted, you can't really see this with the naked eye, 
This ever-so-slight change in color gets picked up by the computers that analyze these images. Here's why this is so cool. When an exoplanet passes in front of its star, if it has an atmosphere, we can see the light from their star passing through that atmosphere and use spectroscopy to determine what that atmosphere is made of. A change in yellows, like Seth said, might indicate sodium gas. With greens, it could mean oxygen. And so that's one of the ways that we're going to try to, um, that we're currently trying to discover if there is atmospheres, and that's the first step in trying to figure out if there's habitability or potential for life. Additionally, spectroscopy can determine if a star has a planet because of that wobble we talked about earlier. As the planet moves around its star, it has some gravitational pull on it, causing it to wobble. That wobble effect changes the color of the light we see, well, that the computer sees, from blue to red and back again. So that's how we discovered the first um, several hundreds of planets around other stars. In no case did we ever actually see the planet. All we saw was the star wobbling and say, well, it's wobbling with a very odd but repetitive pattern, and stars would only do that in response to something else moving around them, and we would then infer that must be a planet. And now, as we get better at using our telescopes and as our technology becomes more precise, we can measure the brightness of stars to incredibly accurate levels. So accurate that we can measure if anything happens to pass in front of them. And it's kind of like saying, if I stared at a headlight on a car, I probably wouldn't be able to tell if there was a bug walking across it. But if I really accurately with a camera measured the brightness of that headlight, and I noticed that it dropped for a certain period of time, and then it continued to do that every two weeks, I might say there was a bug that walked back and forth across that headlight every two weeks. And so that's called the transit method. And so that's how we've actually now, with the Kepler Space Telescope, discovered thousands of planets around other stars, is when that planet transits or orbits in front of the star, it blocks a very small fraction of light. Both this transit method and spectroscopy are indirect ways of detecting planets. They're methods where you never actually see the planet, but you infer that it's there. Of the over 4,000 planets that we found, this is how we discovered most of them. But the next generation of telescopes will help us see planets directly. At the most basic level, Seth tells me, telescopes are just light collecting buckets. Think of light as rain coming down from the sky, and you want to collect as much as possible. The bigger your bucket, the more light you can collect. The next generation of telescopes will not only have more light collecting power, but they'll have better resolution, letting us see things we've so far only been able to imagine. A lot of the advances in telescope technology have come really recently, and they're making it much easier for us to look for a planet like Earth orbiting around other stars. And for Olivier Guillon, the astronomer who heads up Breakthrough Watch, this is excellent news. So that's what's the most exciting, I think, is that within our lifetime, uh, we should be finally having spectra of, uh, of habitable planets. Well, we don't know if they're habitable yet, but they're potentially habitable. And we should be able to look for these uh, uh, molecules, uh, especially water and oxygen, but maybe also potentially methane, uh, that are indicative of, uh, of life. In the short term, the work WATCH is doing fits nicely with what other agencies, like NASA, are doing to find and identify nearby, potentially habitable planets. But they have another mission in mind. The reason WATCH is focusing on the nearest star is there is a connection between the WATCH effort and the Starshot project, which is also a 
an effort by uh, supported by Breakthrough is is looking at ways we may be able to send small probes to nearby uh, exoplanets. So there's a strong connection between these two efforts. The project he's talking about is Breakthrough Starshot, an incredibly ambitious and inventive idea to send teeny tiny space probes to our nearest neighbors. I'm hopeful there's something around Alpha Centauri A or B. I don't know which. Uh, right now, the only planet that is in that system is around Proxima, and that uh, planet goes by the wonderful name of Proxima B. Pete Klupar again. We met him a little bit earlier. He's the chief engineer for Breakthrough Starshot, and as he just mentioned, he's got his eye on Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star system to our own solar system. It's just under four and a half light years away from Earth, meaning light takes about four and a half years to get from there to here. With our current technology, actual travel time for a spacecraft is much, much, much longer, like thousands of years. But Starshot hopes to do something that sounds like it's straight out of science fiction. Remember back to the start of this episode, the probe whizzing through space for years, snapping 10 seconds worth of photos before careening back out into the galaxy? Yeah, that's not entirely made up. It's actually what we're trying to do. The big thing that's that's different about this approach, well, there's there's two major items that are very different than normal. Um, the first one is shrinking down the spacecraft to get it as small as possible. So our objective is to get a one-gram spacecraft. A super simple, bare-bones probe that costs less money to make and takes less energy to move through space. A satellite orbiting close to Earth will house thousands of these postage stamp-sized probes, each attached to an extremely thin sail. When a probe is deployed, the sail unfurls and carries the probe through space toward its destination. But there's no wind in space, you say. How will a sail work? The second thing that makes it really unique is that we build this machine on the ground that's on the order of a kilometer and a half across, and it's... It's densely packed 20-centimeter mirrors and an infinite number of small lasers to go with those mirrors to get to 100 gigawatts of power um, out of this uh, array of mirrors. Follow that? Just over half a square mile of densely packed mirrors, each 20 centimeters across, with a tremendous number of lasers. And these these mirrors will focus those lasers on a sail that is at about um, 60,000 kilometers away. Avi Loeb, the Harvard astronomer we met back in episode one, is also part of the Breakthrough Starshot team. And he explained to me exactly how this technology would work. The reflection of light uh-huh. off the surface gives it a push, just like when a tennis ball bounces off a wall, you know, it gives the wall a push, a small push. Now, the building doesn't move because the building is very massive, but if you had a smaller object, like another ball, then it would move it. So, um, in the same way, uh, you know, when light reflects off a mirror, it does give a push to the mirror, but if the mirror is very thick, you don't see that motion as a result. But if the mirror is thin, you can actually propel it this way. And the point is here, you you don't have the fuel with you and you're just using light that is emitted by another source, perhaps a laser beam that is directed at the sail. And and that gives a push to the sail if it's uh, sufficiently lightweight, in other words, thin, 
thinner than a millimeter, then it would work. By focusing the laser on the sail, they'll be able to accelerate it and the probe to somewhere around 20% the speed of light, which means getting to Alpha Centauri just four light years away will take about 20 years instead of thousands. And after 20 years, what happens then? And then um, we spend about a day in the system. So the images, all the images or all the measurements we take will be taken in about 10 seconds. Um, which seems outrageous considering you've been traveling for 20 years, right? So like Thanksgiving dinner, where you spend the entire day making food and then everyone devours it in about 20 minutes. But it's worth it, right? Because of the computing power of that probe, 10 seconds of images will take about a year to upload. And then it'll take four more years to get back to us here on Earth. It seems like forever, but in terms of how science works especially on a project as complicated as this one, it's a pretty fast timeline. This could potentially happen in our lifetime, which is incredibly exciting. And if we're doing this, makes you wonder if an alien civilization has already gone down this road. Maybe the idea that a muamua is a light sail isn't so far-fetched after all. Now, as you may have guessed, there are more than a few technical challenges that will have to be overcome. Like what the sail will be made of. It needs to be really light. And these things, uh, the sail itself is 400 atoms thick and about four meters across. Four meters is just over 13 feet. And it's made out of a a very interesting material that uh, does not absorb, cannot absorb any of the laser energy, but it has to reflect it completely. Because you don't want those powerful lasers incinerating it. But if it's super thin, won't it just get shredded by space debris? Little bits of dust and sand going tens of thousands of miles per hour? How are you going to get it to Alpha Centauri in one piece? After the acceleration phase is over, we lay it down so that it presents the smallest cross-section to the direction of travel. That way, we reduce the amount of collisions with hydrogen, helium, or stones, grains of sand. If we collide with a grain of sand, that's not going to be a very good day. But our calculations say that it really just rips a hole in the sail. So it would be like if you took a bullet and shot it at a regular sail, like a sail on a sailing ship. It doesn't destroy the sail. What it does is it just rips through the sail. And, of course, every part of this has to be built to survive the launch, the cold, the vacuum of space, and the destructive nature of solar radiation, which does bad things to electronics. So as cool and imaginative and exciting as this project is, we're still a ways off. The thing about Starshot is that we're not expecting to launch anything to a star for 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's a, it's a long development cycle. That's not necessarily a bad thing, because there's something else we have to consider. Breakthrough Watch and Breakthrough Listen could be considered passive projects in that we're simply observing the universe and looking for signs of intelligent life. But Breakthrough Starshot is active, an opening salvo, a foray into parts unknown. Yes, we've sent probes and telescopes way out into space before, but because Starshot will be moving so much faster than anything else we've sent out, it'll get there before anything else does. We're 99.9% sure that there's no intelligent life in our solar system. But beyond it, 
What if our probe, our light cell, or our super-powerful laser array catch the attention of some intergalactic species? Are we ready for that? Would we be able to communicate with them? What message would we want to send? And who gets to decide? Who has the right to speak for the Earth? And are we sure we want to do that? I mean, there, there are people who say, don't do it, right? Because Stephen Hawking rather famously said, don't do it. <laughs> you'll only get us in trouble, maybe. You know, maybe you'll get us in trouble. Because now they'll know we're here and they'll you know, just incinerate the Earth because it sounds like a good thing to do. So what happens if E.T. does phone home? The chances are slim, slimmer still for aliens to actually show up on planet Earth. But there are people out there thinking about how we'll talk to them and how we might prepare. What an astonishing thing to be people who are trying to construct a message across this darkness, across this void, across this scary nothingness, to try to find kindred out there. That's coming up on the next episode of Wild Thing. If you're enjoying Wild Thing, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to good stories. And definitely tell your friends, because all of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season possible. You can find at Wild Thing Pod on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word, for more information about the show. And, of course, for some cool stickers. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus, Inc. Our executive producer is Scott Carney. Editing is by Alicia Lipinski. And the score and sound mixing come from Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz. 